This podcast contains discussion about adult topics. Use your judgment if there are little ears around. Welcome to Doing It. This is a podcast made by Family Planning Victoria. FPV has been running for over 50 years now. We run a whole lot of education programs for communities and medical professionals across Victoria. We also run sexual health clinics in the city and Box Hill in Melbourne. My name is Anne and I'm part of the FPV schools and community team. We go to schools to run classes for all year levels on bodies, growing up, puberty, sex, reproduction and relationship. This podcast is for parents and carers of school-aged children so we can share what goes on in a relationships and sexuality education class and help support these sorts of conversations at home. Today I'll be talking to Katrina Marsden. Katrina is a criminal lawyer who was awarded the Peter Mitchell Churchill Fellowship in 2018. She undertook a study into the use of Relationships and Sexuality Education, RSE, as a key preventative strategy in reducing the incidence of negative sexual experiences and sexualized violence. Her paper is entitled, Ignorance is Not Innocence, Safeguarding Sexual Wellbeing Through Relationships and Sex Education, International Perspectives, Practical Experience and Insights on the Design and Implementation of Relationships and Sex Education, Findings from a Churchill Fellowship 2018. The fellowship took Katrina around the world investigating best practice RSE and the reasons we do it. I'm going to talk to Katrina about what led her to this research and some of what she found. Katrina, thank you so much for talking to me today. We've got a lot to talk about, I think. Uh, You've worked as a criminal lawyer and also served as director of ACT's Child Abuse Royal Commission Criminal Justice Response Team, which was responsible for implementing the criminal justice recommendations of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse in the ACT. So can you tell me how all those roles you've had have led to you identifying relationships and sexuality education as a way of combating sexual violence? Certainly. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm very happy to be speaking with you. So my interest in the preventative powers of relationships and sex education actually started at university before I went into professional life as a criminal lawyer because I did an honours thesis that um, compared the ability of the criminal justice system to prevent sexual violence to the ability of um, comprehensive relationships and sex ed to prevent sexual violence. And it was very much a theoretical analysis, but came out fairly and squarely in favour of education over the sort of reactive tertiary measure that the criminal justice system represents. Nonetheless, I then went to work in the criminal law (laughs) um, as soon as I graduated. But I suppose my time in the criminal law on both sides of the bar table, I did spend some time at legal aid as well, and with a particular interest in sexual offences, only served to reinforce for me how important it is that we invest in the prevention of this kind of violence rather than just responding to it. And, you know, that was, that was again reiterated when I went into the policy space in the role of implementing the criminal justice recommendations of the Child Abuse Royal Commission and just how important it is that we work as a community to try and prevent the harm from occurring in the first place rather than just responding to it. Did you you have particular clients that it really stuck out to you that that preventative approach would have made a big difference to that person's pathways? 
Yes, I did when I was at Legal Aid, certainly. Um, and also when I was, when I've been at the DPP as well, I have had matters where I've thought that prevention, it, it's it simply served to reinforce for me, I suppose, the importance of prevention and the real lacuna of that in Australian society um, and how many people we see who I just think it's a tragedy that we've we've sort of failed to protect the right to freedom from violence before it's infringed. So yes, my experience in the criminal justice system has certainly reinforced that. And then when the opportunity to undertake a Churchill Fellowship came up, to go and look at really good examples of successful relationship relationships in sex education overseas. I suppose I use that as an opportunity to reignite that interest or that research interest in um, sex ed as prevention, having spent a few years very much at the kind of tertiary end of the spectrum. Mm. So what did you discover when you investigated RSE in other parts of the world? Well, initially I wanted to look at relationships in sex ed really best practice versions of it that were occurring overseas and I wanted to look at what were they delivering how were they delivering it modes of delivery content that sort of thing but as I got closer to leaving and particularly more so when I was on the research travels my focus really narrowed to the issue of implementation and that was partly because there is so much existing research particularly coming out of Australia actually about um, the power of RSE and what it should include, what it should look like, when it should be delivered, how it should be delivered, all those sorts of things. There's, there's so much research already out there. So I didn't feel that I would be contributing anything new if I only focused on that. So the question for me really became, if we know so much about the what and the why of RSE, why aren't we doing it? What is it that actually stops the kind of theory from turning into practice and making it a reality and the implementation question. So what I really discovered when I traveled overseas was how other countries or communities had successfully implemented RSE and successfully protected it from, um, I guess, opposition, resourcing frustrations and attempts to derail it and turn it into other things and how they'd managed to kind of successfully entrench it as most often a public health measure. And how do you think Australia compares to those, uh, what you saw with uh, communities blocking RSC getting into schools? So in Australia, we, as you know, education is the purview of the states and territories. So it does differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But I think it's fair to say that there is still a prevailing conservatism around this issue and a prevailing fear that talking to young people about sex at all will encourage sexual behaviour when the evidence is very clear that the opposite is true. The more that you talk to young people about sex, of course, in an age-appropriate fashion, the more you do that, the later they will have their first sexual experiences and the less likely they are to have negative sexual experiences. So I still think we have that misplaced fear very, very strongly in the Australian community. And what I saw in these other countries was not a complete absence of that opposition or that fear. It it existed in all of those places, but the structures and frameworks they put in place to guard against that or to mitigate those headwinds were successful. And that was partly because of a real strategic approach that had been taken to the implementation of relationships in sex ed. And it didn't just 
sort of silo the issue into one sector like education or like health or individual schools or whatever it was it, it sort of was a comprehensive strategy that involved government schools education health the home uh, media there was a whole sort of gamut of strategies or instruments that we used to sort of set it up and then that made it easier to protect against what are very vocal but definitely a minority of voices and it's the same I would say in Australia I'd say that the opponents are are in fact a minority that would be my guess but they're, they're very vocal. You've identified some key factors which lead to success of an RSE program how do you mm. quantify or measure success of a program? So what I was really trying to articulate there was the factors that led to success in implementation. And that was what I was alluding to just now in relation to the strategic approach that cut across a number of different sectors. So those factors I identify are the role of sort of advocacy and lobby groups. And then second, the role of government or public institutions in terms of taking this issue on, usually deploying executive resources to make it come to life, treating RSE as a specialist subject, equipping schools and teachers properly so that it can be delivered in a comprehensive um, and best practice way, engaging parents and caregivers early on, and evaluation of not just the programs themselves, but the implementation efforts as well. So they were the six factors um, I identified as being key to successful implementation of RSE. In terms of whether RSE itself is successful, that I talk about a little bit when I discuss the evaluation side of things, because as someone said to me overseas, and I thought it was expressed quite well, when you're measuring prevention, you're trying to measure the absence of something in the hope that you've caused that absence. That can be a difficult thing to do, but it's not impossible. And I did see efforts at evaluation that have been done in all of these places and they, they manifested slightly differently in the countries that I went to, but it was always a key feature. There was some kind of evaluative measure looking at, can we see attitudinal change? Can we see increased literacy in these issues? Can we see increased comfort with talking about these issues, not just for children, but also their parents and caregivers and the teachers as well. So there was always some sort of measuring of that kind of thing. And certainly in the Netherlands, they have been running their spring fever and their adolescent version, which is long live love or something like that. I can't remember the English translation. They've done a longitudinal study of the efficacy of one or both of those programs and they have shown, as I said earlier, that, that reduction in negative sexual experiences for those who've taken part in the program and a, a later first sexual experience as well. They were some of the findings. There are ways of measuring, I guess, the success of that education. And you're saying that those sort of key factors that you've identified can apply not just to education but to other sectors as well? that it's sort of a, a combined effort. That's right. And I think it's you could potentially analogise with, say, smoking. There are a whole raft of different instruments that were used to try and reduce the amount of smokers in Australia. And that included legal measures and public health campaigns and tax reform and the way that they advertised on products, those sorts of things. There's a whole raft of different measures coming from different angles that create the authorising environment 
for this to take off and actually take effect. I was quite convinced by the end of my research that focusing on any of those individual sectors, such as individual schools, for example, or making it an education issue only, or leaving it up to, you know, individual private providers of sex ed or community sector lobby groups or organisations, leaving it to any single one of those sectors renders it very vulnerable to being derailed and not taking off in the first place, mm. which we see in a lot of jurisdictions in Australia, not every jurisdiction, but in so many, and we see that happening. This podcast is primarily for parents and carers, and one of mm. your key factors was engage, which referred to the inclusion engagement of parents and caregivers. Yes. Why is engaging parents and caregivers important to this process? Well, we know that um, we know that parents and caregivers in the home is still the most influential, they can be the most influential adults in a young person's life, in addition to, of course, their teachers at school. And the reason for using school as the primary vehicle for delivery of relationships and sex education is because you can reach most children in that existing framework and it's already set up for the delivery of this kind of education and you can kind of regulate it a little bit in terms of the training that you would hope the deliverers would receive. So that's why the school is such an important site for delivery of RSE but it must be complemented by the role of the home and the engagement of parents who have a right to know what their children are being taught and it's really important that we engage parents and caregivers in the conversation and equip them with the skills and information they need to have these conversations with the young people in their home um, and the ability to anticipate certain questions or not be troubled by certain questions and to know how to answer them or to know where to go and get help to answer them um, or how to talk to young people in the home around about things like online safety and pornography and consent and those sorts of things and how to have those conversations. So it's really important that parents are engaged early on. And what I observed in all of the places I travelled to was that all of the successful programs did that really well. So not only did they train the teachers, but they had parent information nights. They produced materials and resources that were directed specifically at parents. They could answer questions of parents about what is my child going to learn? In most places I visit, the right of parents to withdraw their child from the class was retained. There were only a few places I went where they had actually prevented parents from taking their child out of those classes. But um, most of the people I spoke with who were fierce advocates for RSE and for comprehensive, universal access to comprehensive RSE, most of the people still said that it was important that parents retain the right to withdraw their child because it's about... I guess, bringing whole communities along on this journey and this sort of educative experience. And someone in the Netherlands explained it to me as um, a triangle, education of parents, education of teachers and education of children. And that's how you kind of capture whole communities with these efforts. And what would often happen overseas is that those parents who are perhaps a little doubtful would have their fears assuaged when they understood what the young person was going to learn and when they realised it would be age appropriate. So I think that's one of the driving fears is that there's a lack of understanding about the age appropriateness of some of this content that is delivered. And when they would learn what the child or the children or the class was going to learn, they were immediately comforted by that and, and their fears weren't sort of retained. Or they would stand on their fears and or concerns and say, no, I'm not going to let my child have this class. 
um, or go to this class. But what would often happen is most of the young people would be attending. So their child would be one of the only ones who wasn't going to the class and that made it more difficult to explain that to, to that child. And um, in the end, they would acquiesce and their child would go to the class. And, and as I sort of in indicated, it, wasn't, it didn't result in the, the feared consequences. It's definitely um, what we experience here as well, that uh, parent information programs will, will help comfort and, and bring parents mm, on board mm. and usually help to explain that it doesn't replace the set of values that is coming from home, yes. that it's really supporting yep. those values and helping that conversation. Definitely. And someone in Ireland said it to me, expressed it in a really nice way about if we're not talking about it at all, you miss the opportunity to give your child the values you want to give them if you're just silent on it. Whereas having the conversation opens that opportunity to endow them with the values you want them to go forward into the world with. And, and I think what we need to be quite clear about is that there's a provision of information and then there's values. And information, the director of the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada expressed it to me as um, access to information that can be used to make autonomous decisions is a right. And I really believe that, that access to information is really important. It is life-saving in this area, quite literally. So I think that making that distinction between the provision of information through these sex ed programs, supplemented by the values of the home, but also, I suppose, engaging with the, the fact that we aren't afraid to teach certain values in schools, in other areas. Like generally, we teach that it's not okay to engage in violence. But when it comes to the topic of sex, we as a society are all a little bit uncomfortable with it still, I think. And there's still a lot of taboo and shame around it and a lack of understanding. And so I can understand why people feel that the best thing to do is just not to talk about it or to talk about it in very brief terms or only for the purposes of, say, pregnancy and STI prevention and not for that kind of building of skill base and understanding that we want people to ultimately reach adulthood having developed. So I, I can understand the fear, but the evidence simply doesn't support it. And I think being clear about that distinction between information and values and what the evidence base suggests, I think it can be very persuasive in trying to get RSE to take off. Your, the idea that teaching about relationships and sexuality will take away a child's innocence mm. is something we hear quite a lot, and it's a really common misconception. Can you explain more about the title of your paper, Ignorance is Not Innocence? Yes, and, and that was really something that struck me while I was on my travels, was I think that's where the crux of the issue can lie or it sort of rises and falls on this issue quite commonly, which is the fear that talking to young people about sex at all will encourage them to engage in sexual behaviour. It's this idea that them discovering sex, because they've learned about it in RSE, will make them really curious and they'll go off and want to go and engage in it, when the evidence suggests the opposite is true. The more you talk to them about it, the more autonomy you give them, the more you equip them with the skills they need to actually engage in these experiences when they get older and to protect themselves when they're vulnerable, the, the more protected they're actually going to be. And so the idea of protecting innocence by keeping someone ignorant is what I was trying to get at with that title because it's, it's unfortunately a misconception and the opposite is true. So someone said to me in England, 
people are concerned that if young people learn about their bodies and learn about respectful relationships and the very existence of this thing called sex, that they'll stop wanting to fly kites and build sandcastles, but they don't. It's just at that age, it's just new information and they sort of take it in and it doesn't result in these consequences. And, and my sort of addition to that would be working in the industry that I do is that when a violation of that right to autonomy occurs, that is more likely when someone's got, when a young person's going to want to stop flying kites and building sandcastles because it's that that destroys, can destroy lives and can put people on different pathways than they otherwise would have been. And we know the destructive impact of sexual violence. It's not the provision of the information. I can confirm that if you tell a young person in primary school about sex, they think it's disgusting. They don't want to have sex. I remember going to with this particular program in England and they went to a bunch of different classes and they asked young people, how old do you think someone is when they have sex? No one said younger than 18. Some one kid said 16 and they obviously knew that that was like the legal age of consent. But mm. all of these kids were like 30 you know, 20, yeah, that's no one said younger than is. 18. They, yeah. they, they know that it's adult activity and you can teach it in a way that makes that clear. But if, we, if young people aren't taught what's appropriate, how do we expect them to know what's inappropriate, even as they turn into adults? And, and if it was the case that by virtue of turning 16 or 18, we all suddenly became endowed with this, you know, the skills to navigate issues like this and sexual experiences and those kind of emotional relationships, if that was the case, we wouldn't have the rates of sexual violence that we do. So we know that turning those ages doesn't, you don't wake up and suddenly have all of those skills and knowledge. It has to be taught. And as someone said to me the other week, it's the same with maths and other things. You don't, you trust the other teachers to do it in the right order and to build on it in an age appropriate way. You don't start with algebra or trigonometry, you start mm. with numbers. It's the same thing. You don't mm. start by telling a three or four-year-old what sexual intercourse is. The evidence, and if, if in doubt, I think just go back to the evidence and the research which shows that it's not the corrupting influence that people worry it will be. It's simply not. In fact, the opposite is true. And, that, and that's the thing that really gets me is if you go to the evidence, not teaching it, not teaching them is actually doing more harm than teaching them. And that's what we should be concerned about. It's not like if we just stay silent, it's all kind of neutral. No, it's at, at worst, it's counterproductive. Mm. So, And I think you're right about just bringing everyone along for the ride of that. Yeah, yeah, message. definitely. Your work at the ACT has seen you bring together expertise from various different fields, not usually associated with reproductive and sexual health to form an alliance advocating for RSE within schools. Can you share with us how this came to be, who the partners are and what you're hoping to achieve with that uh, alliance? Certainly. So it, it really was inspired by the Sex Education Forum in the UK, which is a collective of a group of partners, not always the usual suspects, but certainly a group of stakeholders who um, use their collective voice to advocate for universal access to comprehensive RSE. And they've been going for about 30 years in the UK and they've had varying successes, most recently being that the UK has just legislated to mandate that all students have sex, um, sex ed or RSE, which was an important win, although not, you know, the final kind of frontier by any stretch, but an important win and a success for them. So it was inspired by that because I really saw that they played a role in bringing that collective voice to action 
um, and to advocate to governments in particular to act on this issue and to take up the mantle that they have of protecting the well-being of, of young people. And so what we've done so far is sort of formed a, a small alliance in the ACT of ACT-based um, stakeholders that will hopefully be able to use their collective voice to, to advocate for that access to RSE. So, for example, the YWCA is involved, the ACTPNC Association, a couple of people from an in, on an individual capacity, like myself, I'm, I'm there in an individual capacity, personal capacity, I should say. Ultimately, I think the dream of any advocate in the RSE space is is simply universal access to comprehensive RSE and the provision of good quality RSE that is evaluated and designed by specialists and is evidence-based and that all young people can have access to, not just at school, but through other, other sites as well. And, and that whole of community, as, you, as I said earlier, that bringing everyone along on that whole, whole of community effort. I'd love to see public media campaigns about the importance of this and maybe even doing things like in the teaching qualification stage that teachers have to undertake more training about how to deliver RSE. All sorts of, there's all sorts of things that can be done. As I say, various instruments that have been used in these places I went overseas. In Germany, for example, they conduct a play for young people that's all about sexual violence prevention, how they might talk to a trusted adult, when they might go and do that and um, how they might identify risky situations. You know, there's all sorts of different ways that we can educate in, in the Netherlands. They have a TV program that's for kids and it's all about issues of puberty and bodies and relationships that's on national TV. Mm. They're all obviously sort of blue sky thinking, pie in the sky kind of hopes for it. But ultimately, just moving us a little bit further along in terms of providing that access to information that can be used to make autonomous decisions um, for all Australians. Mm. Excellent. And giving everyone that, that right of being able to have safe, pleasurable sexual experiences when they choose, if they choose. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Um, and, and that's why I talk about in, in my report that, about safeguarding sexual well-being. So whilst a very happy byproduct of good RSE is the prevention of sexual violence, it's also about protecting and safeguarding sexual well-being as people get to the age where they are choosing appropriately to engage in that, in, in those sorts of experiences, um, as you say, so that they can have pleasurable, fulfilling sexual lives as well as, as they would in their professional lives, their personal lives and their friendships and all sorts of things. It's just as important. And this is one way that we can really work to give that opportunity to, as I say, all, all Australians. Thank you so much for talking to me, Katrina. It's been really, really interesting and really reinforced a lot of what we're trying to do with this podcast and uh, yeah, fantastic message of getting everyone on board. So thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you to Katrina for talking me through all that information. I'm just going to mention some key things uh, that stood out to me in that discussion. RSE has the potential to prevent a pathway into the criminal justice system. It's critical to engage parents and caregivers in the importance of RSE for their children. Success of RSE programs could include participation of sectors other than education. Providing information about RSE does not take away a child's innocence, but having personal boundaries violated will. 
Just a few resources to mention today. You can find more information about Family Planning Victoria if you go to fpv.org.au. You can find Katrina Marson's paper, Ignorance is Not Innocence. I'll link to that in the show notes. Also have a look at UNESCO International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education and Evidence-Informed Approach 2018. There's lots of research and information on international guidelines around teaching RSE. You can follow FPV on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Contact me directly at doingit at fpv.org.au. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. Like it if you like it. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.